Welcome to GradCast, the official podcast of the Society of Graduate Students at the University of Western Ontario. Coming to you from the other London, let's start the show. I'm your host, Alex Mozinski, and I'm joined by my co-host, Gina Coombe, today. How are you today, Gina? I'm very good. How are you? Good. I'm actually great, because it's my first time hosting live on air with you uh, again since you got back. Woo! <laughs> when did you... You leave for the summer. It was like late June or... Like, yeah, so, so like... I left early July um, to go to Korea for the summer for about a month and a bit. So that was great, but I'm back now. We missed you here, oh. so welcome back. <laughs> Thank you. How was Korea? What was it like over there while you were there? Um, Korea was very hot and humid. Um, it was not like the Canadian weather that we have here. Now, was it worse than London humidity? Because we're both from Toronto. Yes. And when I came to London, I don't know about you, but I found it super humid and muggy here in the summers. So is it worse in Korea? Is it like next level? It's really like, no, it's so much worse than London. So I'll only ever go to Korea in the winter. Oh, yeah, that's a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, it's nice to be back on air with you. Um, so we're joined today by our guest... Jacqueline Drone, said it right. <laughs> um, and how are you today, Jacqueline? I'm pretty good, you know, for a Tuesday, I guess. It's, yeah, it's Tuesday. Yeah, Tuesday. <laughs> Tuesday's a great day of the week because GradCast is on. <laughs> so tell us a little bit about yourself. So you're a first-year master's student, mm -hmm. just started, just fresh, started. less than a month in, <laughs> and you're supervised by Dr. Rob Hegley. Mm -hmm. All right, so yes. what do you guys do in your lab? Uh, well, it depends on who you're asking. I mean, there's a lot of stuff that goes on in my lab. So my supervisor, he's clin a clinician. So he actually has patients that he sees, you know, every, every I think his clinic a couple times a week. So lots of patients. And so there's a lot of um, kind of clinical stuff that we do. So when the patients come in, you know, they might, they might need some sort of a uh, genetic test regarding uh, their particular condition. So my supervisor, he works with uh, lipid patients and things like that. So there's a lot of genetic tests and screens that go on. Um, and I'm sure there's lots of other stuff that goes on in the lab. I just haven't figured it out yet. But really, there's a lot going on. So if you get someone else from the lab, they could probably tell you a different story. Okay. Um, and so I guess you've just started. Mm -hmm. Why did you choose this lab? Uh, uh, well, I've, I've volunteered at this lab for uh, during my undergrad, and so I was familiar with the people. Um, it was a really great environment. I liked what they were doing, so it's a human genetics lab, and my undergrad was in genetics, so I was really interested in what they were doing. Um, I liked everyone there. I knew already that it was you know, a well-set-up lab, and I felt very comfortable, so I figured, well, why not continue here if it's such a good fit? I would completely agree with you. Um, I've talked to a lot of people, and seems like the a big consensus is that it really matters like how you feel around the people you're working with in your lab and I guess anywhere you're working so that is that's really cool I guess this makes my next question a little bit moot but I'm gonna ask it anyway <laughs> how did you find the transition from like your undergrad to graduate studies uh, and you're sort of in that transitionary phase right now but I know you've been working there over the summer as well so how have you mm -hmm. found life life. Well, the environment itself, it was an easy transition because, again, I knew everyone there. But in terms of, you know, actual academic stuff, so it's it's kind of bizarre thinking that I only, you know, have one class for six weeks and I, I don't have, you know, a class schedule where I have to be on campus for, you know, X hours a day. So that's been interesting. So far, it's been so good. I haven't, you know, missed running from, you know, HealthSci to NCB and all those 
silly things. Um, but I don't know. I, I'll wonder once midterm or undergrad midterm season kind of comes along, I wonder if I'll feel weird not having midterms. I don't know. So far, it's been okay, but we'll see as time progresses. <laughs> I find the really weird question is when people find out that, like, I'm a student still, they'll say, so, like, what are your classes like? Or, oh, are you looking forward to the summer? And it's super awkward sometimes to tell someone, like, at the bank or a stranger that I'm a student all the time, but I don't have class. <laughs> it's kind of weird. Um, okay, so you've touched on this a little bit, but I'm, you know, let's get into it a little bit more. What subject do you specifically study? So, like, what's the kind of focus of your project? So, my project is focusing more on cardiovascular genetics and more specifically on a particular type of, uh, it's called the lipoproteins. So, I'm studying high-density lipoproteins and the cholesterol that's associated with them. So, in layman's terms, what a lipoprotein is, it's kind of like a dump truck that just kind of shuttles cholesterol throughout the body. So that's very simply what HDL is. And so I'm looking at different genetic variants or mutations, you know, things at the genetic level that can influence an individual's level of HDL cholesterol. And that's typically the good cholesterol that you hear about. You have good and bad. So it's the good cholesterol that I'm studying. So you hear about good and bad cholesterol, and there's HDL, and then the other one is low-density lipoprotein, or LDL. Can you tell us a little bit about the differences between the two and maybe why one is good or another might be bad? Yeah, sure. So high-density lipoproteins, or HDL, the good cholesterol. So what it does is you can think about it as moving cholesterol from your arterial walls into the liver so it can the cholesterol cholesterol can be removed from your body. So why this is important is because when people have a high, um, you know, have a lot of cholesterol developing and or building up in their arterial walls, you can develop atherosclerosis and have heart attacks and things like that. So that's why HDL is good because it removes the cholesterol from those areas. Whereas LDL, which is the bad cholesterol, it trucks the cholesterol into your arterial walls. So that's why if you have a lot of, you know, the bad cholesterol, that means you have a lot of cholesterol in your arterial walls. So that's kind of the paradigm between the two. One's taking it to and one is taking it away. If I might ask one question, sorry. Um, So then what's the evolutionary advantage here? So like when did it become useful for something to say, hey, you got this extra fat, you know where it belongs? Your (laughs) blood vessels. That seems like a good place to put it. Like how how did that manage natural selection? (laughs) Um, Well, there is a biological reason for having cholesterol move to your arterial walls, and it's a little more complex than what I think I can be able to explain. Um, But, you know, your cells need cholesterol for certain things to, uh, you know, um, synthesize certain materials and things like that. So cholesterol is needed. It's a building block, but it's just when, you know, too much of the cholesterol is deposited, that's when things get a little rough. But there, there is good to it, but, you know, too much is a bad thing. Okay, that's awesome. So you're looking at HDL and LDL. How are you looking at, I guess not LDL, you're looking at HDL specifically, (laughs) but how are you assessing it? Like what are you looking at exactly that has to do with HDL? Well, within my project, we have a certain group of patients who have either really high levels of HDL, cholesterol, or really low levels. And so these individuals are interesting because we're not sure why they have their specific level of HDL. Uh, so there can, you know, some people have, you know, really low levels of HDL because they don't exercise regularly. They eat 
you know, kind of crappy foods and things like that. But these individuals, um, they have a relatively normal kind of lifestyle, but they still have these extreme levels. So what I'm doing is I'm looking at the genetic level to see if they have a particular mutation that can explain why they have such extreme levels of HDL. So I'm trying to figure out that genetic side of things. Okay. So hypothetical question. Let's say a person eats really, really, really badly and goes to the gym a lot. Are they at risk of having <laughs> bad cholesterol? Or, in, like, what would you think might, might be the case there? Well, I mean, it's really hard because cholesterol levels, it's a very complex trait. So, you know, you have your environmental factors that can influence it. But since it's also, you know, has some sort of genetic players involved, it's really hard to say because, you know, some people might have, you know, like, yeah, they smoke, they don't exercise, you know, all those bad things, but they might have a mutation that is really positive for their cholesterol. So, you know, they could do whatever they want and still not have a heart attack, whereas the opposite is true. So it's really hard to say on a, like just a general example, it could really go either way. <laughs> So I just gave a presentation on fat cells, Ooh. adipocytes. So I'm wondering if you can make that relationship between fat cells and the lipoprotein that you study. Oh, man. <laughs> uh, oh, so yeah. I guess um, we have, to my understanding, we have two types of fat cells. We have the white fat, which is considered bad, mm -hmm. and the brown fat, which is considered good. So do you think that relates to the level of the lipoprotein? See, that's a, that's a really great question. So at this point, from, you know, the amount I've done for my master's so far, I haven't got to those types of, you know, the fat tissues and everything. So I can't confidently say anything on that. But I mean, I'm like, I know everything kind of comes together and e like HDL cholesterol can come from multiple sources. So I know that these fat cells do play a role. I j at this point, I just don't know how much of a role they play. So what you're doing, though, is it more of a genetic analysis. Mm -hmm. So are there, like, cholesterol genes or, like, how, how is cholesterol regulated? Do we have, like, genes that are saying, no, I'm going to have this much cholesterol? Or is it genes that are indirectly relating to it? What... Uh, kinds of genes are you looking at? Um, there's actually quite a few. So just with HDL in particular, I think there are seven genes that are absolute, well, there are a lot of genes related to HDL, but seven in particular that really have a big influence on your HDL levels. So depending on if you have high HDL or low HDL, there's certain genes that are typically related to these levels. So I mean, you know, those genes we looked at initially to try and figure out, you know, why do these people have extremely high or extremely low levels of HDL? But now at this point, since we've kind of exhausted the known gene list, we have to find the unknown genes. So there's a lot going on and there are, but there are a lot of, you know, cholesterol related genes that do come into play. So there's seven that are known and there are probably more. Oh yeah, there, there are tons more. Those were like seven, like big players but there's a lot of you know sub like secondary players and there's there's countless <laughs> so what's something like this going to mean for like our understanding of biology because that's really cool that we can that we're starting to get to the point now where it's not like boom you have the high ldl gene and boom you have the high hdl gene and that explains everything it's not like a simple one gene for one kind of trait uh scenario here so what's that going to mean do you think for biology as a whole, or medicine, uh, years down the road, once you really get a good grasp of, of genetics? Uh, that's a really great question. So, I mean, if we find, you know, more of these 
genetic players. At some point, they can be used for, you know, screening. So an individual comes in, you want to assess the likelihood of them having really high HDL or really low HDL and then, you know, other kind of cardiovascular uh um, consequences from there so that will be really important as to determining okay like so this individual you are probably not going to have a heart attack because you have really high HDL and so it'll be really helpful for those types of you know screening and things like that in terms of you know a further understanding of cholesterol in those pathways I think it'll be really cool because at this point like I'm hoping I'll find something novel so if I can then we'll further expand you know the cholesterol pathway and what we've previously defined as you know what is known and hopefully we can expand on that but I think there's a lot of possibilities of regard around this type of research so um and I guess my last question for that because I in my research study proteins and their modifications um so I like to think sometimes um if my research has any meaning that there has to be a large environmental component as well um do you think that the genetics is at least a little bit limited at some point that there's going to be like a cutoff and we can't necessarily determine what's going to happen in somebody's life uh, based on on their genetic makeup or it's going to get just too complex and we can't uh, figure out all the information or do you think we're going to reach a point one day where I'm going to be extinct (laughs) as a researcher and it's going to be all you? (laughs) Um, Well, let me just... There's a lot of stuff there. I mean... It is so complex that, you know, at this point in time, it's a matter of, okay, figuring out what's environmental and what is genetic. But I think as we move forward, if we can, you know, really figure out how much is environmental, how much is genetic, we can, as you know, doctors can, you know, go to their patient and give them a really solid kind of like lifetime plan if they want to, you know, stay healthy and go from there. So there's... (laughs) I mean, the possibilities, I think I've already said this, are endless for this since it is so complex. There's so many things going on. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's going to be tough to kind of separate the two out and then kind of give a, a quote-unquote prescription from there for patients. So, Awesome. So I want to get into a little bit of the methodologies. You said you have a patient cohort that you're looking at with mm-hmm. uh, either a high level of HDL or a low level of this, of this uh, lipoprotein. So what are... What was done to analyze them? Like, how, how were they assessed? Well, there's a lot of kind of computer work here, so a lot of bioinformatics and analyses going on. So there was a big... Um, initially, the, all these patients had to be sequenced, so we had to get, like, you know, their, their DNA sequence just to start, you know, analyzing and figuring out what's going on. So how do we get their DNA? Oh, so that one sounds straightforward. So you can either take a blood extraction or saliva extraction for these particular individuals, and then from there you can isolate the DNA and separate out the cells and the proteins. So that's that's the straightforward part of this project. <laughs> All right. So and then once you have the DNA, um, what, what what gets done with it? How do you sequence DNA? Like I, you mentioned sequencing, mm-hmm. um, and I know we have a sequencing lab here. Sort of what what goes into that? What are we doing? When we sequence DNA, what are we looking at? Oh, I know this one. So they get oh. the DNA from the frogs, and they fill in the code, <laughs> and then they put it in the ostrich eggs, and that's how they make the dinosaurs, right? <laughs> no? Maybe in someone else's nice lab. Nice try. <laughs> Soon. Oh, yeah, so like, what, um, how are you looking at this? So you're... you're taking their DNA and then where does it go? What's it do? Uh, So the DNA that we get, we're interested in a particular part of 
the DNA or the genome, so the collective whole. Um, and so we're just looking at actually 1% of the entire genome, and that's just the exome, which are the parts that encode for, you know, proteins and the functional, the functional parts of your cell and it, things like that. And so, you know, for sequencing, we want to amplify this particular area and, and then from there determine the bases of that of that sequence. So, you know, is it an A, a G, or T, or a C? And then really we just want to get the letters correct. That's essentially what sequencing is so we can, you know, get something to work with. So the patients that you work with, do you individually, oh, sorry, do you personally see these patients? Uh, no, not me. So that was just my supervisor since he is he, a clinician. Oh, so right. I, I kind of do the behind the scenes stuff. So the reason I ask is because I'm interested in um, finding out whether they have certain phenotypes. So if they, for example, are overweight or if they have certain underlying diseases. Yeah, so we took that into account when selecting our patients to study. So, you know, having high or low HDL can be kind of a secondary, you know, consequence of another uh, kind of dyslipidemic issue or another like lipid phenotypes. So we took those into consideration and we really want to make sure that our study population only had some sort of HDL abnormality and not other uh, phenotypes to go along with it. All right. So now that I understand there's, there's different types of sequencing that you can do, um, what kind of sequencing do you use and how does it compare to maybe other kinds that, that go on out there in the world? Uh, well, for my project, we utilized whole exome sequencing, and so it's a, a, a kind of a subset of next-generation sequencing. So because we're looking at such large data sets and we have so many individuals and we want, you know, high quality, when we use next-generation sequencing, it's able to sequence um, millions of you know, DNA sequences at the same time to get a really robust output. So that's what we're going for, or that's the method we used. And then whole exome, like I mentioned, we're just looking at a small fraction of the entire genome because, like I said, these are the parts that have the functionality and are more likely to play some so sort of role that we can characterize in phenotype. You see, see, like, as an outsider, this is where I find things really fascinating because, like, from an outsider, right, like, everyone's think that we got genetics and the way that we do genetic stuff really, really down pat. Like, you know, it's in a computer, we can print it and stuff. But then... I hear like you guys have to take a statistic sampling of all of the all of the nucleus nuclei in order to get something. And then I also heard about something the other day where if you want to put a gene into something, you just like kind of blast it into them and hope it just ends up in the right place. And it's like it, the That's perception of genetics is so like it feels like it's so digital and proper, but it's actually still like I'm not saying it's a rough science, but I'm saying it's like it's still like kind of. It's squishy. I don't know. I don't know how to. I don't know where to put it. It, it, it just it, genetics comes off as so like clean and digital, but it's not. It would be nice if it was. I mean, that's. I think that's what we want to get at in the future. But I mean, at this like, in terms of you know all the digital stuff and the kind of where bioinformatics comes in, we need these high powered tools to process all of our you know huge amounts of sequencing data. So for my project alone, if I just took the raw data, it would be like more than a terabyte's worth of information and like and. Just, and my, I'm just looking at the exome, which is 1% of the whole genome. So if I looked at everything, I think it was like, I don't know how many terabytes it was. But anyways, so we like to think, 
it is it's digital because you know it has to be digital to analyze everything but you know the the issue comes into play when you know I'm out of biology so I don't have like a, a you know a really hardcore background in statistics or computer science and so when you go to you know bio, bioinformatically analyze these things you kind of need to know a bit of everything to actually make sense of what you're doing so that's kind of what I found I'm like oh man I need to you know brush up on all these stat things and learn a bit of computer science and programming so Hopefully. So it is dif- definitely digital, and we're getting there. But there, there are a lot of parts where we're like, okay, we need to kind of streamline this and make it a little more flashy. <laughs> so I guess you just mentioned a word a few times that we've spoken about in the past. But um, what is bioinformatics? So like, you've got your DNA sequences. You're looking at it. It's a terabyte or more <laughs> of information. Um, and then you, you do something called like a bioinformatic analysis. Like what, what does that mean? Uh, so bioinformatics, I would, I'd like to think of it as just a kind of a broad term of any sort of, you know, computer processing or, an, or analysis that you would do on large data sets. Um, so it takes kind of, you know, a statistical approach and, you know, incorporates all these, you know, fancy computer algorithms to kind of get you to some sort of biological answer or help you get to a biological answer. So bioinformatics, it, it's a combination of, you know, the biological question and a, some t- statistics and a lot of computer science stuff. So it all kind of merges into one and it's this fancy little <laughs> method that I have to wrap my head around. <laughs> High throughput biological information processing. <laughs> That's really cool. Like I, I look at like one little thing at a time, so I've never had an enormous data set that I need to look at. It's all stuff I can do like with a pencil and paper. <laughs> so it's really cool to hear something like bioinformatics. Is that like um, a Punnett square? Do you do like Punnett squares or something? I, I know what those are. I took those in high school. <laughs> I did those in high school too. I have not used one since high school. <laughs> um, okay, so so you, you've you've done you've got your DNA, you've analyzed it, and Let's say you discover a new gene that's that's a little different in one patient than in the rest of them, and this patient happened to have insanely high, or I guess one group of patients happened to have this similar mutation, and they have really high uh, HDL or or LDL. I guess HDL for you. Um, what what would you do next? Like, how do you do? You have to characterize the gene. Like, what uh, what would you be doing? Uh, so there's a couple of things that you would need to do. So first, um, with next generation sequencing um there's there's potential for you know sequencing artifacts or technical artifacts so one of the first things you want to do is actually make sure that what you think is interesting is real and not you know just a mistake so you would go back to kind of the old school gold standard of sequencing which is Sanger sequencing to actually make sure that what you're looking at is you know real and then from there um you know you need to create a story for why the gene you're looking at is actually related to you know hdl cholesterol and so you'd move to functional studies and i'd actually get behind a lab bench instead of a computer and put on the lab coat and uh, do um, functional experiments to you know see does this particular gene or mutation actually you know relate to hdl and change hdl levels so there's a big process after the bioinformatics section so you just lit up when you said put on a lab coat and get behind the bench. Are you, like, really looking forward to doing that? I, yes. <laughs> it's really hard to, you know, sit at a computer and try and sort through, you know, a terabyte of data to find something interesting. So it would be a good change of pace. <laughs> yeah. It, it, it can be a lot of fun. All right. So what do you hope to to get out of, I guess, your, your master's research? Not just you, but, like, are you hoping that you're going to find a gene that's really going to make an impact on on 
patients' lives? Or? It would be unreal if I could find something, you know, that big. Like, usually people might find, you know, a one variant or one mutation that could help explain the HDL pathway. So if I were, was lucky enough to find, like, a whole gene and somehow relate it back to HDL, that would be incredible. But, I mean, if I can just contribute a little bit with, you know, one mutation or whatever, that would, you know, be really satisfying to know that all the work that I've done kind of helped, you know, uncover the mystery a little bit. So if that would be a really ideal outcome and, you know, I'm learning a lot along the way. So even that already has been super amazing. So from there, I guess what I want to ask is what is is an increased understanding in HDL and LDL going to do for cardiovascular disease? as a whole? Uh, well, if we can get a better insight into all of the players for HDL cholesterol and LDL cholesterol, that would really help re- um, regarding cardiovascular disease risk because you're depending on the level of you know, your good or bad cholesterol, you could have very different outcomes for you know, a heart attack and things like that. So the more we understand about you know, cholesterol and these types of you know, players, the more that we can do for cardiovascular disease research and uh, those types of things because um, I believe cardiovascular disease causes one third of deaths in Canadians. So that's like you know, a huge number. So the more we can figure out to kind of help, you know, kind of combat this issue would, it just makes sense to me. <laughs> so it causes one third of all deaths? In Canada. How, how many non-deaths does it cause too? Like on top of the third of all deaths, like uh, I guess one in how many people like want to I'm not sure off the top of my head. I, oh, okay. I should know that. This, this, this is why I should know this already. But <laughs> you will know this after yes. this. Um, <laughs> anyway, so it's so it's really common. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess when we talk about cardiovascular disease, just to to go more broad now, what kinds of diseases are we talking about? Are we just talking about heart attack? Are we talking about heart attack and stroke? Like what? I guess are the cardiovascular diseases that that exist uh well you already said two of them and i mean you know yes. <laughs> and you know atherosclerosis and you know uh, hypertension there's there's so many things that even i still haven't fully comprehended yet in my you know week and a bit of being an official master's student um but there are so many kind of offshoots of cardiovascular disease and and it, so many areas that are involved i guess so we did focus on cardiovascular disease. Does cholesterol cause any other types of diseases? There are actually a lot of um, diseases associated with your lipid levels, and so not necessarily cardiovascular diseases, but <laughs> their names are super fancy, and I wish I could explain them. But um, there's there's a lot where uh, your fat deposits, they're not in normal spaces. So I know there's one, you get a lot of fat buildup in deposits on your liver. So obviously that's... <laughs> quite an issue but there are lots of you know other diseases related to lipids that um, people don't really know about because like they're not you know on the front page of the newspaper all the time but there are a lot of things and these you know individuals have to go through a lot and take lots of medications just to kind of control their lipid levels so I mean there is a lot kind of within the lipid cardiovascular research world. So do you think that every person should be getting their HDL or LDL checked on like a regular basis because <laughs> what I'm worried about right now is that like, you know, I'm not a large person or anything, but I, I would be concerned that my HDL or my LDL could be, could be off mm-hmm. because I'm a grad student and I don't <laughs> eat particularly well. So, <laughs> uh, well, I mean, I think the majority of the population has relatively normal levels of cholesterol. And, and, you know, if you eat well and you exercise, that'll help. But I, like, 
course, you're think I think you're thinking of extreme cases, but I think you're you're going to be okay. And I'm, in terms of you know your genetics, if if you if you go get screened, then you can determine it. But for the majority of the population, it's pretty pretty environmentally based. Okay, I guess for my very last question, we just we have one minute left. <laughs> Tristan's making a face, but you just mentioned genetic screening. So something like uh, 23andMe is that. Uh, an okay way to to get screened, or would I have to go to like a real genetic counselor? Twenty uh, three and Me doesn't look at lipid traits, as as I recall. So, but if you really want to know, I would go to a physician. Twenty three and Me is kind of like a fun, let it go. Let's go see what it is. But I wouldn't put any, you know, actual. I wouldn't bet everything on Twenty Three and Me. I'd go say go see a doctor if you really want to know. <laughs> okay. Well, I think that's all the time we have. So thank you so much for coming on the show. I know it's early on in your master's, <laughs> and, and you were a little bit nervous about it, but you did an amazing job. Thank, Thank you. you very much. Hopefully you'll be able to come on the show another time later down the road. Yeah. Everybody, this has been GradCast. I'm Alex Mozinski. See you guys all next week. Thank you very much. Yup. That's all we got for this week. If you like this episode, share it with someone. Check us all out on Twitter and Facebook. Both you can find through GradCast Radio. You can go to our website to see more episodes at gradcastradio.ca. And if you want to come on the show and talk about your own research, great line for your CV, go to gradcastradio at gmail.com. The theme is Happy Boy by Kevin McLeod, and we will see you guys next time.